It's the Relevant Top 50, counting down the best music, TV, books, and movies of 2016. books, TV shows, 2016. I'm your host, Jesse Carey. I'm an editor here at Relevant, and here with me today for the final episode of our mini-series countdown is Relevant Boss Man. <laughs> I like that one. That's the number one. Relevant Boss Man, Cameron Strang. I want a t-shirt that says We've that. We've been building this for weeks. Relevant Boss Man or just Boss Man? Just Boss Man. Just boss man. It's all one word, by the way. But like Ron Bossman. Yeah. <laughs> Bossman? Yeah, I, we've, we've ordered you a vanity plate uh, for the holiday season. <laughs> also with me is Relevant's editorial director, Aaron Hanbury. Hey, Jesse. How's it going, man? It's going good. Managing editor, Re- Rebecca Joe Flores. Hi, guys. And our producer, Chandler Strang. Hello. Today's episode is brought to you by Harry's. I'm a big fan of Harry's razors because unlike big razor companies that have a habit of putting out new models and raising the already high prices, Harry's doesn't believe in upcharging, which is why they've made their razors even better and they're keeping prices exactly the same. It's still just $2 per blade compared to the more than four you pay at the drugstore. And by owning their own factory in Germany where they make the blades, Harry's can produce high quality razors themselves and sell them for half the price. Harry's is so confident in the quality of their blades, they'll send you a free, popular, free trial set, which comes with, listen to this, Aaron, a razor, (laughs) a five-blade cartridge, boss man, shaving gel. (laughs) Rebecca, if you're looking for a present for, you know, man in your life, uh, when you sign up for a free shave plan and just pay shipping. Chandler, you look like you need a good shave. That's good for you because their (laughs) five-blade razors now include softer flex hinge for more comfortable glide, a trimmer for those hard-to-reach places. They've even redone the grip on the blades. This is a great thing at Christmas time. Wow. Uh, there's a special offer right now for fans of the show. Just go to harrys.com and enter offer code RELEVANT5. That's relevant and the number five at checkout. And you'll get a post-shave balm added to your order absolutely free. What a deal. So thanks for Harry's uh, for sponsoring the show today. As we mentioned at the top of the show... This is the final one. This is the this is the big Kahuna of the relevant this top is fifty the boss countdown man of the top fifty. <laughs> we have gone through forty selections. So if you haven't heard them, you can go back check those out. But we are down to the top ten pop culture releases of two thousand sixteen. Sayeth us. Mm-hmm. I mean, this isn't like a a, a, a universal truth. Mm, disagree. This is a subjective. You can adopt it as such. Okay. But <laughs> Yeah, when 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 I say, when, when it say thus, it becomes a universal oh, truth. Okay, I, would, I would stake a lot on this list. Okay, for the people with short attention spans, yeah. do you want to give a sneak preview of number one? Of number one, I will say this: it was a, been a long time since King of Queens was on the air, and <laughs> we had been dying for a CBS comeback. Uh, I will say, I will say this. <laughs> The the number one rhymes with this hypothetical show. Devin can date. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, since we, we have ten to go, I'm going to jump right in here. Uh, the the final ten. Here we go. Hailing from California, local natives capture a sunny atmospheric sound throughout their 2016 release, Sunlit Youth. 
On the surface, the album is bright, catchy indie pop, but on a deeper level, Sunlit Youth is doing something untraditional. It's building songs from fresh, new sounds, pushing creative boundaries in an album that sounds like nothing else in 2016. Coming in at number 10, Sunlit Youth from Local Natives. The local natives. Yeah. They're the first band I ever shazammed. <laughs> <laughs> They're a very shazamable band. <laughs> I was in Barnes and Noble and Airplanes was playing, and I was like, oh, I can get into this. Shazam. That's, that's a great reference. I, Happened. I, I love the, the latest album, Sunlit Youth, because, like, fundamentally, Local Natives is like sort of like the constructed like an indie rock band mm-hmm. you know well, like uh, you say constructed I didn't say deconstructed yeah, we need to be careful that this week we do not say deconstructed because <laughs> you're going to have to put five dollars in a, in a jar <laughs> every for every reference in a deconstructed jar fundamentally the band is constructed like <laughs> a, a traditional indie rock outfit but when you listen to Sunlit Youth you can kind of see that they maybe have laid their foundations when they wrote these songs like they would if they were just guitar bass and drums but there's so many cool sounds and atmospheric moments throughout the album of like yeah I'm listening to it and it's like the shazamable thing if I had a shazam for like what is that sound or what is that instrument or <laughs> how do they do that because they're really innovating the the you know whole setup of the rock and roll band Sunlight Youth also like encounters a lot of aging and change yeah. um, themes, and it's like the indie kids are growing up, man. They're, yeah. they're struggling with it. Uh, it was a good, it was a good year for indie rock, and and they kind of represent more bands like this album and our and our top ten represents more than just local natives. Yeah. Honestly, this is a good yeah. album, but like the, you know, there's there's a lot of there's a lot of artists that couldn't. We just couldn't get in, yeah. mm-hmm. and it was a good year for indie rock. Like, yeah, it just it was. Fun. Well, I think what I like about uh, Sunlit Youth best in relation to other uh, local natives projects is that it sounds like they're having a lot of fun. Yeah. Not not like they weren't before, but like they weren't trying well, to do something. before they were too young. Well, they didn't right. even know they, they were having fun. Know. Now they uh, appreciate the fun they're having. Now their youth is sunlit. <laughs> That's the yeah. whole thing. Yeah. Uh, no, I feel I feel like they weren't trying to do something uh, like other people do when, you know, when they follow up a certain amount of success. Yeah. And it feels like even in some of their little departures from previous work, it felt like they were just doing something that they wanted to do. No, they're and relaxed. I think that comes they're through. experimenting. But, yeah. but I think what you two are tapping into is why it's so compelling for us I, as a platform. I mean, like, you know, 93% of relevance readers are between 18 and 39. Okay. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we get, we get the optimism of youth and then they grow up like while they're with us. And, and that's what this album is really yeah. about is mm-hmm. like, is that kind of self-awareness and that journey and that kind of, 
you know, kind of the uh, the fear of the unknown and the nostalgia of the past and regret yeah. and all this stuff. It's, it's a really profound album for this season of life. Well, Mike Judge's comedy Silicon Valley takes on the often self-serious world of big tech business, startup culture, and moonshot thinking with gleeful irreverence and sharp parody. Along with its commentary about the actual Silicon Valley, the series features some of culture's most subversive and innovative comics and improv actors, including T.J. Miller, Martin Starr, and Kumail Ninjani. Coming in at number nine, Silicon Valley. If you want to live here, you've got to deliver. Like Steve. Jobs or Wozniak? Steve Jobs or Steve... No, I heard you. Which one? Jobs. Jobs was a poser. He didn't even write code. (laughs) Silicon Valley is the cradle of innovation. Your compression algorithm blew our engineering team away. We have the resources to take what you've done to the global level. I'm prepared to give you $200,000. $600,000 for 10% of your company. $10 million. What if we built... Our own company. Sunday night HBO, come on, is yeah. like the best. I mean, it's just consistently whatever season they're in, and so you know they do these like three month runs of shows and mm-hmm. stuff. And Silicon Valley isn't on right now, yeah. And there's some other great shows on right now, uh, so it's easy to forget how good Silicon Valley is, yeah. And it's not just. I think that I think something that's unique about what happened this year with the show is that. Um, when it first started, it was just like, hey, we're a parody of like all the Google, you know. Wannabes. Yeah. yeah. The, <laughs> and, that, and just that whole scene. And it was cartoonish, almost like almost like that uh, that movie, The Interns with Vince Vaughn. And mm-hmm. yeah. it was like yeah, that. Yeah, it was like, yeah. it was kind of like. How do you work a webcam? Yeah, yeah. 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 It was like, it was silly. <laughs> yeah. It was silly. And something, <laughs> something happened is that there was elements within it that were really, really sharp. And so mm-hmm. HBO, to their credit. They gave elevated it, that wit. Yeah. Gave it legs and yeah. gave it time. And what happened this year? it just got really really mm-hmm. smart and it, it didn't lose its edge but like if you go back and watch season one yeah it's kind of campy yeah 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 that's mm-hmm. that was my point it's a little campy and yeah. like but this season something happened that the satire is just really really sharp mm-hmm. yeah I, and i feel like you know, it's it's mike judge his perfect form is when he gets the time to find the right tone, right? So Mike Judge, a lot of people would know him from like Office Space, which is another comedy about, you know, the workplace, or he did like Idiocracy. But those in the film format with him, which he's a really sharp, he has really good ideas about parody and how to make commentary on contemporary culture. But in the film format, you can only explore that so much. A great show like this, three seasons in, he can hit a pocket and elevate the dialogue that he's trying to create. Yeah, this startup went from, you know, ragtag idea they formed a company. It, it had the the success, and then it had the struggle of success and investors, and then it crashed, and then mm-hmm. this the whole journey. And it's been it keeps getting better and better. Is my point? Yeah, yeah. I honestly appreciate Silicon Valley so much because in New York City, the last company I was at, they were like, "Yeah, let's blow all of our venture capital for the pinball machines." That sounds like a good idea. And no so they way. capture, and they're like, "We're going to be the next Facebook. We're going to be the next Twitter." And they would say that at every company meeting. And meanwhile, you're like, "That's not happening." <laughs> So they it's really like dead did? on. No, it uh, absolutely. Yeah, like had how many ice, pinball machines? Exactly? I've invested. <laughs> hey, I will say this: had like ice sculptures with the logo, and we're like uh, laying off twenty people. Like, what is going on? We got a new ice maker. No uh, yeah, man. I'm glad I know so that bad. because I have a venture fund, and I feel like <laughs> I've been wondering if I've only been funding <laughs> pinball machines up to this point. The other thing that I love about Silicon Valley is Kumail Ninjani, yes. who I first saw, I first encountered him He's on great. Portlandia, and mm-hmm. every scene he was in Portlandia. I'm like, he's perfect. so self-aware. This dude yeah. is the funniest guy. His, he's so dry yeah, and he has this persona. Some of those cell phones, like episode one or two or whatever that is, is just 
and, and he Poorly is allowed to like like really explore his own like quirks and comedy in this show. To me, he steals every scene he's in. You know, <laughs> I'd agree. I totally agree. Yeah. Following a years-long hiatus, Radiohead finally returned in 2016 with a new album that shows why they are still one of the biggest rock bands in the world. A moon-shaped pool finds Tom York and company doing what they do best, creating foreboding, guitar-driven rock that explores modern social anxieties while pushing new limits for their ever-evolving sound. Coming in at number eight, Radiohead's A Moon-Shaped Pool. This album, it, you know, it's hard to plan, especially for like Radiohead, which, you know, they kind of go years without putting out new music. It's hard to plan an album that captures some of the mood like going on in culture right now. But just like that song we just heard, there's a line, this is a low flying panic attack. This idea, and you can hear it too. Terrifying. That's deep, Justin. Yeah. But, but, but you hear those like droning strings, you know, you, you kind of hear this like, it really does tap into this mood of kind of anxiety about what the future holds. And the video, like the other thing about this album and every, you know, this kind of plays throughout Radiohead's career is they release a series of music videos with it. A lot of them were done by Paul Thomas Anderson, the filmmaker who their guitar player, Johnny Greenwood frequently collaborates with. Um, but in that particular video, you know, there's a scene taken from the original Wicker Man movie where this guy goes into this village and they end up literally killing the messenger and sacrificing him. I think that's an M. Night Shyamalan movie. But here's the twist. <laughs> <laughs> it, it was the Wicker Man. No, <laughs> but but, what all, but the, my, my point is like this album was so weirdly timed to capture, I feel like, a lot of what dialogue is happening and puts a mood to it, which is something that's really hard a to spooky do. Spooky mood. Yeah. Like this. just like to point so out good. this has nothing to do with how great that album is uh, this year at Lollapalooza they headlined yes. and Jesse and I were there I, right up front I unlike Jesse had a photo pass yeah he, and he, I got to watch the show from 10 feet away from Tom York Tom York was sweating on camera like I, that night I have his guitar pick <laughs> no, um, <laughs> it was an unforgettable musical experience oh, I'm yeah. sure yeah Gosh. it's unbelievable that's awesome. And, and, awesome. and I do feel like this is because I've, I'm sure a lot of you guys have listened to the Radiohead catalog. This one I feel like is captures a live energy. They, then that, that translates in a lot of the videos. They actually replayed some of the songs live for the music videos mm-hmm. because out of all of their albums, like when you hear like OK Computer or something, there are these kind of digital moments that doesn't, that kind of, they t- kind of like deconstructed the, it, uh. That's the word I was looking for. <laughs> no, but, but you know, like, but this oh, one man. isn't digital. This one has this yeah. live energy, yeah. and that's what they do best as a band. The White Helmets is the film that photojournalist Khalid Kahid literally risked his life to make. 
The 21-year-old captured the real-life heroism of the Nobel Peace Prize-nominated group, known for their white rescue helmets as they dig out survivors from bombings in Syria's ongoing civil war. The film shows the brutality and the devastation of war, but also the humanity and hope embodied by the volunteers who've dedicated their lives to saving their neighbors. Coming in at number seven, the white helmets. For Aleppo's children, they are the last lifeline. Engineers, shopkeepers, bakers, now experts in search and rescue. Every day you see children. We see uh, the children more than others. Ismail al-Abdullah taught kids English before the war. Now he helps save them. When we go to the location, first thing we hear that we have three kids are here under the rubble, two kids on the other side. Part of the all-volunteer civil defense force, the White Helmets, 3,000 across Syria who saved 60,000. That clip is actually from a news story that was covering the group right before this film really took off. And the reason that it can't be something from the film is because a lot of the film is war footage where it's hard to translate that into the audio experience. It's it's bombings and people digging out children and people from bombings. This is a, a really hard movie to watch, but one that I feel like puts a perspective on the Syrian civil war mm. and what's been happening there and continues to happen there. It, it literally takes you on the front line and, because it, it's filmed about people who are there. Yeah, this morning the UN called this situation in Aleppo a complete meltdown of humanity. And so this movie really, and it's and it's easy to read the headlines and be like, okay, continue scrolling, you know, retweet, whatever. But this movie really takes you into the, you know, the forefront of what that actually means, that there's 50,000 civilians still trapped, that there's, you know, hundreds of children running around um, separated from their family members. And it's a really important documentary. Yeah. And the filmmaker's 21. Can we yeah. talk about that? That's yeah. crazy. It, That's crazy. The, 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 it focuses on this group that's known as the White Helmets and basically they go in after a bombing and risk their own lives. You know, and they're volunteers. Yeah, dozens of them have died doing this. They'll go into a building that's you know, basically collapsing and, and run in to, to you know, pull survivors or potential survivors out. This film is right there. It, there are such tense moments. There's one mm -hmm. scene, and it's actually in the trailer, if you, if you, if you may encounter it on YouTube, where someone, the filmmaker's filming from his balcony, and you see barrel bombs being dropped close, but, you know, like maybe a, a quarter mile away. Wow. And a cloud of dust you see rise, and it just rushes towards the camera and overtakes everything. It... The, there are war movies and then there are actual scenes of war and there are it, it really is jarring but in a good way because yeah. it shows the humanity that's happening and it gives perspective to what's going on what yeah. we read about well, I think I mean I think that's an apt description for the whole kind of episode or the reality of this group the White Helmets is because I mean how how starkly depressing is the reality that they're facing in this very odd, hopeful way <laughs> that there's this group of volunteers who are doing something about it. Yeah. And the white helmets, they're literally reaching in to save the lost, you know, yeah, like yeah. they're like, people are lost. We're going to go risk our own lives. Yeah. And to they're be unflinching. Able to... They run in. Yeah. You know? yeah, yeah, they, no, they, yeah. It's wild. I was thinking about that this morning that, you know, in 10 years from now, when this situation in Syria is, is resolved and over, you know, ho hopefully um, there's going to be war movies made about this. You know, people are going to pay to watch, you know, Jessica Chastain, like, you know, go in and tell the story. And, and here's one. Here's that the yeah. One. Here's the actual yeah. story. Yeah. Yeah. yeah unbelievable. Malibu is Brandon Pock Anderson's second album under the 
Anderson Pock moniker, but it's where he finds his musical identity as a soulful, genre-defined artist. Jazz, hip-hop, R&B, funk, and pop all converge on Anderson Pock's Malibu, an exploration of big musical ideas, catchy grooves, and a variety of musical styles. Coming in at number six, Anderson Pock's Malibu. Six years old, I tried my first pair of Jordans on. Mama, can you carry me? It was late in the fall, I caught a glimpse of my first love. My God, Mama, can you carry me? Knees hit the floor, screams to the Lord. Why they had to take Mama? Mama, carry me to the early morning. Mama, can you carry me to the early morning? Yeah, Mama, can you carry me? Hey, hey, hey gather round, hustlers, that's if you're still living. And get on down before the judge gives the sentence. A few more rounds before the feds come and get you. Is you gonna smile when your date gets issued? You know them feds. This album. We came out earlier this year in the spring yeah. and Im- immediately put Anderson Pock in the conversation with uh, Chance the Rapper and Kendrick. I mean, mm-hmm. like, I mean, like, there's a new thing happening in hip hop, and it is like, I think Kendrick started it a couple years ago, yeah. and and it's this exploration of musicality and like just like the albums open up. It's not like yeah. track driven or hit driven or single mm-hmm. driven as much as it's like a true album experience. And uh, I, th- I mean, obviously, Chance's album did that this year as well. But Anderson is like part of that wave, and I love this wave. And and he just such a prolific artist. There's so much musicality, and he's a great rapper. There's great harmonies and melodies, and I mean, it's just a, it's a just a complex, interesting album. Yeah, I, I, and I have an, a, a little admission to make. I when when it first came out, really dug it. Then I I you know more music came out. It was still in rotation, but you know you're listening to whatever's out at the time. But then I. Saw saw him do a Tiny Desk co- uh, concert at NPR, which for those who aren't familiar with it, it's basically super stripped down. It's just mm-hmm. him, like a, a drum Deconstruct. set. Yeah. Nope, no, stripped down. <laughs> stripped down, <laughs> stripped down. There's only a couple of like instruments and he's playing the songs that, and, and they sound like, they sound studio quality and he's playing these instruments at the same time and you realize what an incredible musician he is, and then you go back and listen to the album, and you listen to all the music parts, and you listen to, like, these you know, these Motown moments and these funk moments and these soul moments. And you realize this, he's a real virtuoso. I love the resurgence of funk that we're experiencing. And yeah, with Pac, he began playing in his bedroom in, as a teenager and you hit the nail on the head, Cameron, when you said like the album opens up because yeah. it is a return to this artistic experience, right? I think when, you know, digital music took off, people were really afraid that it would become kind of like a track by track experience and that art would be lost. But guys like Pac are bringing it home. Just gave my mama Tim Rex and she packed and went to true mash with it. Could dribble the work and gave me half of it. Half of it I took in the back of the air mattress. A quarter stash was stashed in the box with the air maxes. The rest got lost in sacks with my wife in no BM. Whack, dropping links in my DM. Bathroom, and down in nigga TL. Glad that you finally made it to the future, but you late in the prices through the meat. roof if you want, you could wait outside the building. I ain't taking no more meetings. Step in the What, what's uh, interesting about his story, Anderson Pac, he was a, a drummer at his church growing up. Dude, he's, he's such a good drummer. So you yeah. can hear that. That's, that's what's what, so crazy. Right. To that's me. what like, drives this album is that groove, that underlying. Mm-hmm. He's a he's a musician's musician. Mm-hmm. You know? mm-hmm. I mean, on like Questlove level, kind of. Yeah. Kind of pockets. So so the uh, the content of it. So he's another one of these guys who grew up in the church, and mm-hmm. and his music is you know. You, you get glimpses of that 
you get glimpses of this yearning and this searching and this, you know, a, a love for God, love for the church. Yeah. But then there's also this other content, this other life and this other, and, and there's, you know, as relevant, we don't like endorse, you know, explicit content and stuff like that. Obviously there, there is an explicit label on, on yeah. this album. There is a clean version. That's the one that I've been playing. Um, and you know, there's a line between profane and explicit in my mm-hmm. mind. And uh, like last two years ago, the Kendrick Lamar album, we listed it as our number one album of the year. Yeah. Uh, was it last year? Yeah. And it, I mean, it was explicit, but there was almost like an intentionality to that and a reality to that, that we felt wasn't profane. Mm-hmm. And, and therefore, you know, from a redemptive standpoint, felt like we could stand with or stand behind. Um, you know, th- I would put that same thing on this album, like listening to this through the lens of he grew up in the church. Uh, you listen to it at a, in a different way. Than yeah. if it was just another rap album, you yeah. know what I mean? There's there's something that there's a connectedness to our world and our our perspective, our worldview yeah. that like he's exploring, and there's a tension, and 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 there's a life, you know, kind of thing. There's a pull there that you hear if you listen to it discerningly. And, and I feel like that tension isn't only just presented thematically in the lyrics, but also musically. He's got one foot in the past and one foot in the future. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like he isn't just foregoing, like you know, some of these maybe Motown or gospel or funk influences. He's embracing them, putting a new twist on it, yeah, and doing something that. new. Yeah. So it really is almost like this interesting guy who's Duality, walking yeah. a line. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's not Bruno Mars's 24 karat gold. I mean, no. it's not like, <laughs> it's just a funk song yeah. and there's no, nothing else to yeah, that. It's, it's not, a fun funk song. Yeah, you know, or, or this p- is like interesting and complex. Yeah. It's and, something new. Yeah, yeah it is. Yeah. In a year when dry comedy and dark dramas dominated much of the critical discussion, this is us decided to do something new. It told real sentimental stories of humanity, love, parenthood, and purpose. Examining interweaving stories of individual people, each dealing with their own life milestone, the show manages to connect dramatic character development with fast-paced storytelling and interesting twists. Coming in at number five, this is us. Big three? Big three! What's our end game? The man has stage four stomach cancer. I'm sorry, you're just a litterer. You hulked out on a bunch of fatties. The drinking has to stop because I won't have it in my house. I'm supposed to beg to be the man again. I don't know what I'm going to do. Well, I do. And you did it already. What did I ever do those first two minutes without you? Our plane is rapidly approaching the boyfriend-girlfriend zone. I was not a very good brother to you. No, you were. But you still got time. You wanted to be the man that made you happy. You made me happy. Big three! Big three! So I know there's a couple really big This Is Us fans in the room. It's so good. It's, it is it's so, so good. good. It's worth watching the I mean, first episode just for the whole discussion. The first episode is one of the best and the first epi- pilots I've ever seen. The first episode had so much hype around it that critics were worried about how it would be able to carry that hype and really unfold the story mm-hmm. after kind of giving this huge um, revelation in the beginning of the series. But they've really been able to do that. And what I love about This Is Us is, you know, I came home for the holidays after moving from New York City or being in New York City five years and had these conversations with my dad about his childhood and youth that really changed my perspective about him and why he was the way he is. This Is Us captures kind of those connections between family members that really just change your perspective on that character and to be able to do that in the first season when there's not a lot of backstory and they don't have a lot of margin for character development. So good. It's the Gilmore Girls of 2016. <laughs> <laughs> it, I think I it like feels that, more like, that like parenthood that's not it at all. Spot. No, yeah. I know. Yeah, <laughs> it's Parenthood, Friday Night Lights. Yeah. It's Gilmore that, Girls. Yeah, yeah. yeah I, I think I, th- I actually think there's a little more substance though um, in This Is Us than some of those previous shows. Uh, maybe like Parenthood. parenthood? 
Yeah, I think so. <laughs> Parenthood. Yeah, really? I do. Yeah. Record scratch. I mean, it's like. Are you all like huge Parenthood fans or something? It's a phenomenal show. Big, we got some big Parenthood fans yeah. around the desk. Never seen it. But but, <laughs> but, but what, I, what I do feel like is sort of refreshing is it's not cynical. And that was what was great about mm-hmm. Parenthood. You know, the, the, the one thing I feel like in the era of like prestige TV, there's like two easy lanes to fall in. One is sort of like the cynical parody that kind of the office started. CSI. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> the, the crime scene stuff, you know, <laughs> forensic <laughs> investigation. <laughs> let, let me deconstruct this a bit. <laughs> <laughs> Looks like he lost his head because <laughs> he's decapitated I pulled my sunglasses yeah. off right. no, no what I'm saying is like in prestige there was like two kind of veins one was like the dark cynical yeah. stuff and the other was like the anti-hero stuff yeah. you know, like the mad men's and you had Deadpool. like breaking Shameless, bad yeah. yeah but you know, because those have like a degree of cynicism where this doesn't. This mm-hmm. is totally this is like authentic and it's sentimental and explores a lot of relationships. It's like, like a really good Hallmark movie. It's like just get your Kleenex, get your blankets, <laughs> cuddle up on the couch. Dim the lights. Have never made me cry. Yeah, I've never seen I mean, one. I've never seen. Yeah, the presentation of even like adoption, I think, is so rich. And this is us, which is a refreshing take, I think, on just portraits culturally. But like that, it features an interracially. Uh, adopted in family um, and, and the way they picture that and some of the struggles with the, the kids have relating to their parents and to their siblings and the way they work through those things, I think is just phenomenal. How often is a show or a movie based around uh, an angsty teen wanting to meet his real family or something like that? Or, or I mean, you mentioned Hallmark movies or whatever. I laugh with my father-in-law all, all the time because my mother-in-law watches Hallmark movies about like, he can. We can predict what's going to happen. You can tell us you watch Hallmark movies. I've actually, I've, 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 <laughs> yeah, my father-in-law watches them. Tell me all about them. Anyway, <laughs> at Christmas time, he gets really emotional and watches these movies, but it's totally his thing. And I, I just happen to be passing the living room while they're on and sit for two hours. <laughs> I'll admit it gets you in the holiday spirit a little bit. But yeah. I've never seen a full one. Yeah. Um, no, but I think everything's about like the, you're not my real dad, and I'll go find you know who it is. And the way this family works through uh, the integration of the family, I think, is, is really great. Colson Whitehead's The Underground Railroad is built on an interesting concept. What if the famed Underground Railroad that helped free slaves throughout the American South was an actual locomotive secretly crisscrossing the nation? Through the eyes of a young escaped slave, the novel explores race, injustice, and the brutal reality of America's dark past. The groundbreaking book drew universal acclaim, even claiming the 2016 National Book Award. Coming in at number four, The Underground Railroad, by Colson Whitehead. Uh, about 16 years ago, I thought, what if the Underground Railroad actually was a literal underground network? And I started thinking about some yeah. more. <laughs> yeah. And, and then I thought, what if, as our hero travels north, every state he goes to, through, and he was he at that point, um, each different state, North Carolina, South Carolina, was a different state of American possibility. And yeah. so each time she gets off on a at a station and comes up from underground, she finds a different alternative America, slightly tweaked, um, but a different um, sort of state of possibility. This was the most anticipated literary novel of the year. And it's, it's rare. Like we do a lot of these year unless it's, it's somewhat rare that there is like 
universal agreement that this is the most important book. Esquire, NPR, New York Times, like relevant. not just yeah, relevant. Yeah, not, but I'm just saying like not just one vein of like literary criticism. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it's got a, a lot of praise. Yeah. Well, I, I almost um, Aaron read it in a day. It's not possible. <laughs> I almost I almost wish you skimming it. In I day. almost wish that we could talk about this in like two weeks or something after I've like ingested and like processed yeah. the book more through because there's so much there. Um, I will say the things that jump out about it are uh, Whitehead's skill as a writer is just incredible. The the subtlety he achieves. I mean, the one line I keep thinking about is he describes um, Cora's grandmother being beaten at one point by a fellow slave. And throughout the whole little scene, he describes this other slave's hands as big, the man with big hands. And all he says about her being beaten is that the, the big hands turned into big fists. And then he leaves it there. And I, th- I think taking an, an, uh, the approach to the novel that can work with that level of literary excellence and be so moving is, is an achievement in and of itself. And I'll say one of the, my biggest regrets in reading a lot of the re- reviews or disappointments at reading a lot of the reviews is I fear actually this novel is being co-opted to be something of a commentary for 2016 and 2015 as if it's like the culmination of like, you know, our literary form of Black Lives Matter or those kind of things. And I think actually that sells Whitehead a little short um, in what he's actually achieved. And I think uh, uh, Esquire actually got it right when they said this will probably be in in the canon of great American novels uh, that transcends just a a year in which a book comes out. It's tremendously moving. If if Colson Whitehead sounds familiar, I realized after we, you know, Aaron and I were talking about the book, I was like, why do I know the name? He was, he's done a lot of magazine writing, but he's also a writer for Grantland. And yeah. uh, he wrote an interesting series about be, becoming a pro poker player. He th- he has like a, such a wide scope of writing skill, and for him to choose something that takes on a histor- an interesting historical perspective mm-hmm. of the real brutality of uh, of America's past is a challenge for a writer, but one that obviously you know was a risk worth taking for him. Yeah, and to his merit, during such a sensitive year on this subject where a lot of um, Americans in America are are revisiting their past and trying to grapple with kind of our history that has been otherwise Mm -hmm. overlooked in other years. So he does an excellent job at that. And one of the things he illumines, and I have no reason to think this isn't realistic, although he he takes pains to describe that he's not doing a historical novel in in the sense that he's drawing on real people or anything like that. Mm -hmm. Uh, He's not literally drawing on real people. He's not like like taking a marker and drawing. Right. No, no, people. he doesn't. He wouldn't do that either. <laughs> Both things he doesn't do. Exactly. It's a really weird thing about his book reading. He doesn't he, try he, to tell their stories. That's in the virtual reality. He doesn't that. give you yeah. tattoos. He just writes all Whitehead. the things he's doing. Yeah. Uh, the, <laughs> the antagonists in the book are twofold. It's both kind of the slave industry and then even the uh, inter-slave community, and that's something I've never. Read in a story before, so Cora, the main character, obviously is being oppressed by uh, plantation owners and those kind of things. Uh, but she's also an outcast within her community, yeah. and will be regularly beaten and mistreated um, and ignored, um, and having her stuff stolen from those within her community too. And so it, it presents her as devastatingly hopeless because yeah. there's not even there, she has no respite um, from her oppression, and which is what leads her to escape with 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 a friend. Um, but I, I'd never, I'd never even kind of considered that before. You know, yeah. you, you picture these as really, rather binary, and I think what Whitehead did in, in kind of breaking that mold was really interesting. Yeah, I think it's a, a breakthrough for a literary voice that we're going to hear a lot of in the coming. Well, years. I mean, he's already been nominated for a Pulitzer for some of his previous work yeah. too. So, I mean, I think in some ways this is a culmination. But you mentioned too, like his pop culture writing. I mean, yeah, dude's the real deal. Yeah. Even though he first garnered buzz with the 2014 EP, the debut album from Gallant was one of 2016's biggest music surprises. Ology is an ambitious 16-track album filled with big R&B anthems and smooth ballads. 
He's known for his energetic live shows that have created fans around the country, and his unique voice has made him a favorite of tastemakers and respected artists, including Zane Lowe, Sufjan Stevens, Elton John, and Cameron Strang. Camp Boss Man. Coming in at number three, Gallant's Ology. I'm pulling my- So this, the full album came out in, in April, but Weight and Gold was part of an EP that came out in late 2015. So I was freaking out about that EP and, and that song in particular. And so when we went to South by Southwest in March, we saw Gallant was playing a couple of small shows. Nobody had heard of him. Like he was like just the opening guy by himself yeah. before, you know, in front of 30, 40 people. And I'll tell you, just seeing him on those stages, he crushed it. I mean, like his, his energy, his performance was that of a veteran, a multi-year veteran performer, not a guy just starting out. Yeah. And then after that, he shared the stage. He went on tour with uh, Sufjan. Yeah. He uh, shared the yeah, stage with here. Elton John. I mean, like he's, the guy's like ascending in a, in a significant way. But this album, aside from just what Weight and Gold, because it's almost like Weight and Gold set the bar too high. Oh, so yeah. like how, yeah. do you, how can you yeah. do an album that, so, that song, meets Maybe this? the song of the year last year. But yeah. Yeah, honestly, but, but it... It, it really delivers and it's it's beautiful and it flows and there's ballads and there's other hits there's I mean it's as far as alt R&B goes I don't know anybody better than Gallant right I now I totally agree and, and if if you read Relevant Magazine then then you'd hear that I think his approach to music is so you read his approach to music is so interesting too that he uh was initially being put into a corner by those who are around him and asking him to do more like love ballad type things. And he just kind of wouldn't do it. You know, he would, he would only, he would only sing about the things that he wanted to sing about. And he felt were authentic to him. And I think comes through too. Yeah. Makes me want to open the sunroof. I like drive down Miami Beach, mm-hmm. just like the city, like going by. <laughs> like, come on now. Oh yeah. Woo! Come on, Gallant. <laughs> Man, it's like it's he's he's figured out something. It's like he is blending genres. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's like For there sure. is definitely some pop synth pop in there, and there's definitely R and B in there. Um, it's one of these guys that's just kind of found his own lane and uh and it's it's just wonderful yeah he the the other thing that i if people aren't familiar with a lot he's only 24 years old and he's a baby yeah and he's still developing as an artist but the the cool thing about having an album this early in his career is there there is that sort of like energy of you know, someone creating a project like this for the first time. If you As get they a, grow into their own. Yeah. yeah it, it, cool. If you get a chance to see his performance on The Tonight Show uh, from earlier this year, he looks genuinely excited to be there. And it translates in this performance where you have someone who is 
fresh to the music industry, has created an album that he's passionate about, and it translates. And, it, and I feel like it translates live, but also in the studio. He was able to capture this energy. There's no fillers. It's a long album, but every song is good, I feel like. Cancel the rest of this podcast, man. Let's just sit here and play Galanch. It's gracious. And I love the crescendos of his voice contrasted with that kind of like, you know, dirtier synth bass. Yeah, sound. It's so good. There's a, I saw some reviewer somewhere uh, refer to gale force yearning in his music. And it's just like, yeah. Yeah. It's this guttural. Accurate, yeah. 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 In his first directorial effort in a decade, Mel Gibson depicted both the violence of war and the devotion of faith. Hacksaw Ridge tells the true story of conscientious objector Desmond Dawes, who saved 75 men during a battle in World War II without ever firing a shot. The film also marks a transition for actor Andrew Garfield, who's gone from a blockbuster superhero to a critical darling, starring in a role that is being called one of the year's most powerful. Coming in at number two, Hacksaw Ridge. I always dreamed about being a doctor, but I uh, didn't get much school. I can't stay here while all them go fight for me. Would you figure this war is just going to fit in with your ideas? While everybody else is taking life, I'm going to be saving it. And that's going to be my way to serve. This is a personal gift from the United States government designed to bring death to the enemy. Well, I'm sorry, Sergeant. I can't touch a gun. You don't kill. No, sir. You know, quite a bit of killing does occur in war. Private Doss does not believe in violence. Do not look to him to save you on the battlefield. I don't think this is a question of religion. I think this is cowardice. I fell in love with you because you weren't like anyone else. You're saying you could go to prison. But I don't know how I'm going to live with myself if I don't stay true to what I believe. With the world so set on tearing itself apart, it doesn't seem like such a bad thing to me to want to put a little bit of it back together. How can you not want to see that movie after that clip? <laughs> My heart's racing right now, guys. <laughs> I noticed this week that uh, Golden Globes came out and Hacksaw and Andrew were both nominated. Yeah. 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 Best actor. It's almost like we know what we're talking about. Yeah. Oh, I know. I know. Well, of course, this was a big cover story for us. I mean, we sat down with. Yeah, the current with, issue of Roman. Uh, the current issue. That's right. Sat down with Andrew and talked through uh, with Mel Gibson as well. Talked to Mel Gibson, who's the director. Um, and I mean, what they put together, I mean, I was thinking, thinking, listen to the trailer, you hear that one little clip of Hugo Weaving, who plays Andrew Garfield's father in the movie, and massively affecting scenes in the film. Oh, I thought you were saying Weaving. Hugo Weaving. You could hear him in the corner weaving. It's a boring no. scene. Yeah. Yeah. It really should have been edited out. Yeah. Yeah. There's, about, there's about 10 minutes. You have to commit to it. Well, Hugo, just weaving. Yeah. Yeah. to the plot. Yeah. It's fine. Yeah. You could hear it briefly in the trailer. It's a deleted scene. We saw a director's cut. Did I see the director's cut? Is that where the Hugo Weaving? Hugo. Um, no, Hugo Weaving also delivers a great performance. Andrew Garfield, I think, is truly unbelievable in the role. And the film is, is so pertinent with what it, I mean, as a war film, it's, it's super brutal. I mean, it, yeah. it's Tarantino 
Violence. Yeah, but it's not Tarantino. It's Mel Mel Gibson, which is also brutal. I mean, Braveheart and other things. I mean, yeah. So I mean, if you if you if you think Passion of the Christ and then crank it up a little bit, I mean, you've got basically what you're dealing with in Hacksaw Ridge. I feel like what makes it particularly interesting to us because any given year, there's like really powerful war movies. I mean, it's just a staple of what Hollywood puts out. But there are few that use faith and religious conviction as a counterpoint, Right. right? So most war movies are told through the eyes of someone who embraces violence as a necessary means to enact heroism. Like that's, that is the formula. It for is heroic. Yeah. Yeah. That is, is heroic. The, yeah, exactly. Like in effect, it takes a good person doing something bad for the greater good. That's the formula. This movie and why it ends up so high on our list is because it's, it's notable because it is, goes against the message of war, not just the message of beat the bad guys. This is about a person who is using his faith as a a, a reason to go to war, but without fighting. And that, you know, the whole ends up, you know, the the real story of Desmond Dawes is ultimately about this thing. When the rubber meets the road, how far are you willing to take your religious convictions? And not only are, are you willing you know, in his case, to possibly go to jail for them. But are you willing to die for mm-hmm. them? That's the mm-hmm. question this movie is concerned Absolutely. about. And that's why I feel like it's elevated beyond a war movie and deserves number two on our list. Oh, absolutely. One of the things I love about what Mel Gibson did with that exact issue you're talking about, Jesse, is that he, he doesn't, though, turn Doss into necessarily like an anti-violence activist yeah. in the film. For him, for him he's it, not trying to convert people to right. pacifism. He's, he's not protesting the war necessarily. And, and I think the enemies in the war are certainly projected as as the bad guys, so to speak. Yeah. Even though there are scenes where Doss is seen saving both Japanese and um, American soldiers, which you know I think plays in the point well. But you're you're exactly right, and I think the way they approached that was very realistic, um, and, and didn't try to make almost the opposite point either. Yeah, I, I honestly I can't think of another film and another story that takes faith in this direction and takes takes faith conviction in in there are movies yeah, where characters have absolutely. faith but there's no one that says okay I'm going to take it to the furthest possible extreme to see if conviction still holds up and mm-hmm. see if it doesn't mm-hmm. fall mm-hmm. apart and to paint it, yeah paint it in a good light and at some points it makes you uncomfortable watching the, uh, certain scenes in the film where you know you see Andrew Garfield get ostracized you see him at one point get the get the crap beat out of him and you you come to wonder like whoa where where is this all going like yeah. kind of his conviction and it's it tells the story excellently I thought the metaphor of that scarf Hugo was weaving at the end that last it scene was really together. powerful and if you hadn't sat through all five minutes right. of Hugo weaving. That's a complete sentence. Yeah. Hugo, we- it just yeah. says the script. Right. There, there's two pages in the script that says Hugo <laughs> weaving. It, it was like almost Schindler's weaving. List. That one moment, that thing, that last scene with that scarf. Mm. Oh, <laughs> it all came together. Yeah, I got he it. got it back in the mail for his father. It was what was in the FedEx package the whole time. <laughs> yeah. was that, that scarf that Hugo weaving. was weaving. <laughs> yeah. Thanks. I was curious. Thanks, and Hugo. It, yeah, it came back. <laughs> so, Okay. I was going to just jump right into this, but uh, I told everyone at the table, the that's not a good idea. We, we need to build this up. Okay, so there has been 49 other things that we've talked about. We're, we're like, this is like six hours in right now, mm. and it's all been building 
to this single moment. This is it. Yeah. Not this is We've us. We've had a lot this of stuff. This has been a good year. It's been a troubling year in many ways. Yeah. A sad year. Uh, uh, people are ready to shed this year. Yeah. But as far as music goes and pop culture goes, the art that was created in this year has been significant. Yeah. Like I, you know, we've been doing relevant for 16 years now and have been covering, you know, books and movies and TV, but a lot of music. And, and I, I can point to years and eras where like, we're it's just, there just wasn't a lot coming out that was yeah. substantive or, or artistically compelling. And, uh, this year, like, whew, it has been fun. Yeah. Right. And, and the great thing about great art is like, it endures. Like we're, a lot of people are going to look well, it's back. It's like the gospel. Yeah. Well, well you know, there, there's this element to, you know, history will remember things and will forget things, but great art endures no matter what, right. you know, like you can look at uh, uh, things that a culture created and that's a true reflection of an element of that culture that is trying to say things and is trying to create messages that is going to be what people remember. And I'm really grateful that, you know, we, we did get to talk about a lot of cool stuff. It was a good year. Uh, in TV, you know, it's, we're, we're talking, you know, we're, we're at the peak of we're peak TV right now. You know, we've got a, a, the, a movie that is widely recognized as, you know, one of the best movies of the year, if not the best, our best movie. And it's probably going to win an Oscar at some capacity with faith at the, at the forefront. We have books that are tackling race and, and America's history in interesting ways. And we have artists that are comfortably living in attention and willing to express it in ways that we haven't heard in years past. 2016, I think, was a great year for pop culture. And now, our number one relevant top 50. Well, 2016, it's safe to say, was the year that Chance the Rapper helped change music. The Chicago hip-hop artist Coloring Book was an independently released mixtape and became the first digital-only album to be nominated for a Grammy. In this case, seven, including Best Rap Album. Throughout the collection of songs, Chance openly discusses life and justice. It even covers a version of Chris Tomlin's How Great Is Our God. It contains collaborations with the likes of Kanye West, Justin Bieber, Francis and the Lights, Future, and others. Coming in at number one, Chance the Rapper's Coloring Book. It seems like blessings keep falling in my lap. It seems like blessings Falling in my lap I don't make songs for free, I make them for freedom Don't believe in kings, believe in the kingdom Chisel me into stone prayer, whistle me into song air Dying laughing with Krillin saying something about blonde hair Jesus black life ain't matter, I know I talk to his daddy Say you the man of the house now, look out for your family he has ordered my steps, gave me a sword with a crest. All right, we all have a lot to say about this album. I'm going to start it off. Do it, man. Two things. One, again, back to my context of profane and explicit. This is an explicit album, but Chance, you know, grew up in the church, is a, is a believer, and in this album, more than anything, personifies this moment as in culture and especially hip-hop where there's this, like, almost, like, explicit gospel thing happening. Kanye called, called his album a gospel album. It wasn't in style. It was more in content, you know, yeah. where he thought it was a metaphor that kind of paralleled the gospel is kind of thematically what he was talking about. Chance's album is a gospel gospel album not only in content but also in musicality yeah, and music influence mm -hmm. and and I think when he 
dips into the other aspects of life and the, and the lyrics do dip into the explicit and things like that. He's talking about this, uh, the reality that he knows with a transparency and a vulnerability and an honesty that I think is intriguing. He talks about his faith, honestly. He wrestles with it, honestly. And he talks about other aspects of life, honestly. And and again, we don't, we don't condone you know, uh, profanity, but uh, the content of this album and the artistic merits of this album and what it represents in the conversation and the culture, I, I think is a significant thing. Yeah. Uh, he ta- talks about when he was recording this album, he moved out to LA for a few months and rented a house up in the hills. And every morning at 6 a.m., because he was still on Chicago time, um, he would wake up. He was a mor- he's a morning person, apparently. He would wake up and he would go walk around the neighborhood, but he would open every window in this you know luxury home that he was renting and he would blast Kirk Franklin for two hours as he every morning, that's how he starts his day as he listens to Kirk Franklin, Fred Hammond, uh, 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 Byron Gates, and several others that he loves. And he would just blast gospel music throughout the neighborhood and like set the tone and then spend the rest of the day recording and stuff like that. You can absolutely hear that influence Mm -hmm. throughout this album. Yeah. And Chance himself has said he's not trying to make the new gospel, but he's like, I'm a Christian man. This is part of my life. And I honestly think that's what's awesome about it is that he's not afraid to live in that margin where it's like, I don't have everything figured out, but I'm going to make music that I identify with. What I think is, is interesting about what he is doing and what he like, Cameron, I think you, you use the right word there. Person, he personifies something that's happening right now. The album stands alone. Don't get me, don't get me wrong. Like yeah. it's a great album. To listen to But it's also but bigger it, than yeah, this exactly. album. It's also yeah. like a, a, a microcosm of this cultural moment. When we look back at 2016, we will remember what mm-hmm. happened this year in hip hop faith yeah. and the conversation shifting and chances album is the best representation the hallmark, yeah. of that. Yeah. yeah. And like what you said, Cameron, about the art that has come out this year, I think that chance has really brought that all together in a message of hope. Yeah. Like hope is kind of what has been. The it's messy. It's a messy reality, but yeah. there's hope in Christ. Yes. And that, that comes through on this album. And, and the, and also like, I feel like the, the other cultural, culturally significant thing, is for a long time there has been this wall between especially in the music industry you know and for a lot of reasons that you could deconstruct if you wanted but there was this wall between Christian art I like art. to strip it down yeah yeah strip it down a little between like Christian art that was marketed towards Christian it had a certain message and the people that made it felt this pressure to not ask questions and to not say things in public that they may say to you in private yeah. and then there was stuff that wasn't Christian and there was no in between you were either like this like perfect Christian with perfect Christian messages you lived in a Christian bubble or you lived out yeah. in the world and, that's and, it but, but someone like Chance which is you know he's part of a bigger movement and is having the most recognized album from it for a good reason is comfortable of saying, look, I might not have all the answers and might not have the say all the perfect things or do all the perfect things, but it doesn't, that doesn't exempt me from wanting to, you know, create expressions of, of faith and a, a belief in, so, in something bigger than me. Chance is uh, from Chicago. And because that goes back with Kanye West and Kanye West's album this year came out and had these, some gospel moments. Now it's got profane moments as well. Uh, Chance was in the studio a lot with Kanye for, yeah. for that and talked about it uh, uh, on Beats 1 on, on Apple. Uh, if you listen to the relevant podcast, you know I listen to it all the time. Uh, Zane Lowe, one of their main uh, DJs, had a very long, in-depth, hour-long plus interview with uh, Chance. Chance talked about being in the studio with Kanye. And, you know, again, that thing of every morning he's 
kind of like absorbed in gospel and things like that. Chance was bringing that into the studio for while they were making Kanye's album. And he said that it led to so many faith conversations between him and Kanye while Kanye was making uh, his album this year. And you see evidence of that pop up all over Kanye's album. That's Chance the Rapper's influence on Kanye, um, which is really interesting. The other, uh, the other thing is uh, on that interview, Zane and and Chance talked about uh, Chance's own faith and how it showed up on this album. And here's part of of that interview from Beats One. What's interesting to me is if you think about artists, you think about musicians in general. You know, religion has always played a very strong part in people's lives, and there's no, no no mystery that faith in music and faith in God go hand in hand a lot of times. I can think of a lot of artists who are very religious, but they shroud it, they guard it. They guard it probably privately for themselves because yeah. they feel it should be a personal experience. And I'm sure that's the case in rap too. I'm positive of it. You know, you are, the devotion is on display on this record. Yeah, That's really unique if you think about it. You're not hiding anything. It's a very, very open, you, you really are serving the purpose here. Yeah. I mean, since I, I I think like I, all of this this music kind of came from me moving to Los Angeles as a catalyst. I, I, I moved out here at the beginning of 2014 and stayed here only for about four or five months. Mm. But in that time, I felt like I was um, kind of losing my God a little bit, you know. And uh, that was that was the time that I started making a lot of this music two years ago, and and. It, it kind of carried through and and led me to understand and know that my next project was going to be, you know, um, founded in God and founded in my faith. Mm. Um, but I never really set out to make anything that could pretend to be new gospel or pretend to be the gospel. It It's just, I think, music from me as a Christian man. Because I think before I was making music as... A Christian child. It's worth noting that he played by his own rules, not just yeah, stylistically and in, in content-wise. He released this album as he's rethinking what an album even is in this sense. You know, it, it wasn't ever released in physical form. He calls it a mixtape, but it's getting. It, it's also, in a way, in a weird way, a microcosm for a shift that's happening in the music industry, which is artists rethinking how they're releasing music and uh, you know what the business model is. And he, you know, embraced it. Didn't it just become the first Grammy-nominated album not to have a physical release? Yeah, and it has seven Grammy nominations, yeah. this album. Yeah. It's a significant album. And that was the, f- the first they've ever done a non-physical Yeah, well, was they changed the of... rules uh, before this year's Grammys, oh, yeah. and this is the first time yeah. a digital-only album showed up. Well, you know, out. what I like about it, though, is that I don't I feel like it doesn't lose its album qualities in terms of the listening experience. Which even, would... even though he build it as a mixtape, yeah. which yeah, usually mixtapes are a little bit more loose. They're not as quite honed in. An They're EP little... with a few more songs. Yeah, here's uh, all we got. Man, my daughter couldn't have a better mother If she ever find another, you better love her Man, I swear my life is perfect, I can merge it If I die, I'll probably cry in my own service ah, ah. It was a dream, you cannot mess with the pain This is like this many rings, y'all know what I mean This for the kids of the king of all kings This is the holiest thing, this is the beat that played under the word This is the sheep that ain't like what it hurt This is officially first, this is the third this is 
it's it's a uh, it's a distinctly 2016. You know, like even the songs we heard, like aren't traditional song structures. Yeah. You know, like, and I think that represents what you just said. This is distinctly a 2016 yeah. thing where this mm-hmm. came. Yeah. Of course, you had your Bon Iver's and your James Blake's and others earlier. Yeah. That kind of paved the way a little bit uh, of that asymmetrical <laughs> approach yeah. to music. Um, but this year, it came in mass. And yeah. again, I think Chance the Rapper is a is a the pinnacle of that representation where they just let the album breathe and open up and see yeah. what happens. And it's not traditional radio hook you know, verse hook verse and you're yeah, they're out they're having fun with it yeah yeah, yeah. 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 Let, let the song be what the song wants to be yeah. and even in you know um, the how great is our God you, it's it's oh, like it's on so paper good. if you were like well it kind of yeah. has this it's really yeah, it, sounds, raw. it sounds almost ridiculous to talk about and, and then you hear it and it's <laughs> like this is weird and I wouldn't have thought to put a song together like this but it sounds it's cool you know mm. it fits well gang what a ride Mm. 50, 50 items. Uh, like we said, a great year for pop culture. Um, for anyone who wants to check out uh, the, obviously all the past ones are in all the past episodes are in the feed. If you want to, if you missed any, we're also going to have something on the website uh, this week at relevantmagazine.com that breaks down each of these and has a little bit more. So you can see the full list right there. Be sure to follow us at, on Twitter at Relevant Podcast. Uh, you can keep up to date with everything that's going on with the show. We got some big, big plans for 2017. Big. Also, thank you to Harry's. Remember, you can go to harrys.com right now and enter the code RELEVANT5 at checkout to claim your free trial set of post shave bomb. That's harrys.com. The code at the checkout, you got to put it in the cart, go to checkout, is Relevant 5. Makes a great uh, Christmas gift if you're looking for anything. Well, once again, guys, I'm uh, Jesse Carey. I'm Aaron Hanbury. Rebecca Joe. I'd like to thank uh, Hugo for the scarf. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm Chandler String. (laughs) All right, guys. See you next year. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.